and welcome to episode 12 of the Warpod from the Oxford Research Group's Remote Warfare Programme. My name is Liam Walpole. I'm the Policy Manager at Oxford Research Group. And today I'm joined by two experts from the Danish Institute for International Studies, Peter Albrecht and Sina Marie Kord Rafkeld. We are going to be examining the importance of protecting civilians and doing it effectively in conflict environments with a specific look at the Sahel and broader West Africa. Now, over the last few years, we have seen the UK and many of its allies increasingly turn their attention to the Sahel and the Horn of Africa, where they have stated aims of building stability and countering terrorist groups. Now, they do this mainly through remote warfare. And as we've explored in a lot of our previous work, just look at our website for the catalogue of research that we've done on this, including in two recent podcast episodes. And while this form of engagement is often presented as low risk, the reality is that the risks are just poorly understood. And this is perhaps especially true when it comes to effectively protecting civilians. Our two experts, Singer and Peter, will help us understand these challenges. Enjoy the show. Hello, Sina and Peter. Thank you for joining us for this Hello. podcast. Hello from Denmark. Hello from the UK. Now, if you could, we'd really like it if you could just briefly outline your own work, the research areas that you've been focusing on before we get going with this fantastic podcast. Uh, okay, I can do that. Um, my name is Sine Kolrankil. I'm a senior research uh, at DIES. I've been working on local conflict drivers, peace and security, and also migration issues in the Sahel for more than a decade, and also um, uh, a lot on international um, military actors' responses to the uh, security crisis in the Sahel. And I'm Peter Albrecht. I'm also a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies. My main focus has been on uh, on West Africa and specifically and mostly on Sierra Leone and uh, security sector reform. So basically how security sector reform is used as a peace building tool, instrument to rebuild institutions and how that whole process relates to non-state actors such as chief traditional leaders and so on uh, at the local level. And then I've also worked quite a, f- a fair bit on peacekeeping. So Sina and I wrote a report in 2017 about African peacekeepers in Mali. Uh, and from there, we have uh, I've worked on peacekeeping both in, uh, in, 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 in on the Horn of Africa, but also now working on Ghana's role in peacekeeping and looking at how their sort of participation over the past 60 years has shaped the security sector back home and that's both for the police and the military and you've and you've recently written a report on that is that is that correct so i've just just, there there is uh, one report coming out that is Mm. looking at civil protection of civilian from the perspective of the soldiers that protect it's written with a with a with a researcher professor um at the King's College, Sukanya Potter, and it's looking at India and Ghana's role in uh, in peacekeeping and how they have responded to having to protect civilians, and it's something that we can also talk more about. Uh, Fantastic, in, brilliant in, in the 
in the in the podcast. Wonderful. So the dynamic duo from Dees. That is correct. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, one of the first questions that I wanted to ask you both, uh, and feel free to chip in however you feel is is relevant, is what you see uh, from your research are the particular challenges when it comes to the protection of civilians in somewhere like the the Sahel. Well, I think. Actually, it's it's one of the issues that Sina and I have looked at together, specifically how protective civilian is is carried out within within MINUSMA, the the UN mission mm. in in Mali, and uh, <clears throat> I think taking it maybe one step, uh, yeah, well. One of the one of the things that we really that was really clear is that there is sort of a racial dimension to protection of civilians. So basically, the forces that are least equipped, not not very well trained, are the ones that are pushed out in these positions where they are actually uh, expected to do protection of civilians. Uh, whereas Western troops are more in specialized uh, positions in in the mission. Uh, so. A lot of these troops basically do not have necessarily the capacity or basically the capacity to both protect themselves and also start protecting civilians. So there is this this gap in capacity in terms of of doing that. In specific case of MINUSMA as well and Sahel is also a lot of the neighboring states that are involved in, in, uh, in, uh, in MINUSMA. And many of them are involved in MINUSMA because uh, such as Niger, Burkina Faso, these, these types of countries involved because they also worried about their own countries and the safety and security in their own countries. So it means that they are playing two roles. They're both part of uh, the, the, the mission in, in, in Mali in order to stabilize Mali because of the implications for the region as a whole and therefore also them, their countries. But of course, and then as I just alluded to, it's also to safeguard their own borders. It means that in practice, what we also have pointed out, and Sina has pointed out more than I have, but I pointed out once or twice, is that they are more concerned about actually uh, safeguarding and defending their, 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 the border regions with Mali, for instance, in, in, in the case of, of MINUSMA. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about, um, yeah, of course, there are also some uh, contextual aspects uh, to this. Um, and I was in, uh, I was recently in Mali uh, in, in February, just before we were all pulled back because of the coronavirus. Um, and I visited one of the internally, um, um, the, the more informal camps uh, of internally de- Displaced persons on the outskirts of Bamako, which was depicting very much people sitting on a literally a dump site, barely two kilometers from from the UN's uh, mission's headquarters, um, and 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 though these people just represent uh, a small uh, number compared to the more than uh, two hundred thousand internally displaced uh, persons in Mali, adding also the ones that the more than Hundred thousands that that are um, refugees in in the the neighboring countries. It became very clear to me that the all these international responses that we have seen uh, to the crisis in Mali have not addressed um, the question of um, uh, protection of civilians. And and as I said, there is also a context to that when. Uh, the UN uh, became involved uh, in the beginning together with the, the French counter-terror um, uh, operation. Um, unlike other peacekeeping contexts for MINUSMA, uh, protection of civilians was among uh, one of the 
priorities in what has been termed its um, uh, a Christmas tree mandate, uh, pointing to how broad uh, and manifold the scope of the mission's mandate was. But it was not a strategic priority at that point because Uh, the UN was mostly focusing on establishing um, a peace agreement between combating groups and, and they were not so uh, involved in directly attacking civilians at that point. So it was not yeah, a strategic priority until actually June 2019. And as the conflict has moved from, from, the, uh, from the northern regions where Yeah, you can also say it's not very uh, densely populated, and and jihadist actors has also gone local into this uh, the center. Um, this lack of protection of civilians has been uh, extremely devastated. And you can say for Minusma, there is there is um, there is this idea that it it has a very uh, robust mandate, but the robustness uh, has been mostly. Um, uh, and Peter and I have looked uh, very much into this. Has been mostly addressed. Addressing the the protection of uh, Minusma's own forces because they have been such a direct target for for terrorist groups. Um, but somehow this uh, using all possible means to protect forces has not translated into protect uh, using all possible means to to protect civilians, and and particularly in the central regions of Mali, which is a very complicated area with very diverse ethnic groups, uh, historical disputes over natural resources, and also um, a, re a region that borders Burkina Faso and Niger. And as we have seen, these attacks spreading into to the neighboring countries. This this is this has been um, yeah extremely vis uh, visible and and extremely. Uh, Problematic uh, case for for the UN and and in, and as you can say for um, civilians uh, there are three threats uh, there is the threat of jihadist groups there's the threats of of uh, communal violence but there is also the threat of of uh, counter terrorist actors and and Minusma has also been very closely cooperating with both the uh, the French um, counter terrorist force but also the regional uh, counter terrorist forces as well as the the Malian army and and that has led to also at the level of the UN a, a large discussion about the risk of conflating counter terrorist Uh, aims with um, protection of civilians, meaning that protections of civilians is not having the priority nor the resources that it should have. And we are seeing what we're seeing now is the consequences of of that. You can say. Is saying it's also I think Sina is really also speaking to the, sort of a, a bigger, more global problem for the UN uh, in terms of actually taking on this role as it, to protect civilians in a context where there's no peace to keep. So this is like a long and very old sort of like phrase to use about uh, peacekeeping in a place like Mali. But the UN and there's been a long and and uh, quite strong debate about this is not equipped to actually take on mm -hmm. this role in a context like like uh, like. Mali. And that, of course, shows how the UN has been pushed into a more stabilization-related role than actually doing peacekeeping without having the mandate, political will uh, pushing behind it, but also the equipment to actually take take on this role. And, and I think sort of that's a bigger debate that actually also sh it shows 
in the in the 90s in the early 2000s there were a lot of UN peacekeeping missions there was an idea that that would actually was a solution to a lot of conflicts around the world but as the conflicts dynamics have changed from internal domestic uh, internal civil wars to much broader regional mm. Uh, wars uh, that are much more violent and and where where the, the the mission suddenly becomes a target rather than supportive of peace. Obviously, the UN has shown its 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 limitations in this respect. Um, and Mali is the last uh, as mission that was actually established by the UN uh, and uh, with 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 uh, Trump also saying that he wants to cut back the budget of. Yeah. Uh, of of the UN in terms of peacekeeping or in general, actually, it all obviously shows just how how uh, how much under pressure the UN is, and it has how much it actually also has failed this role. Uh, and I think now actually seeing the Security Council House how the smaller role it plays in the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic also shows that there's not a lot of uh, faith in 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 in, uh, in in the UN. So that basically just to show a little bit about the sort of global political dynamic also yeah. of protecting civilians. I was just going to say, I mean, it's uh, from recent announcements from President Trump. It, he obviously is not in the mood for supporting <laughs> UN bodies. No, not, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Uh, but I think also, I think it, it, another small thing to say is also we talk about protection of civilians, but what are the contexts that we're talking about this protection of civilian in when we're talking about the Sahel? There was this sort of separation or division between the Maghreb in the north, Sahel in the middle, and then the Guinea coast on the on the on the southern part of West Africa. But I don't think we can make these sort of like quite clear distinctions about sort of conf- conflict complexes that we're actually doing in, in, in West Africa as a whole. Burkina Faso, just north of Ghana, where I work, uh, the Ghanaians are really, really worried about what's happening in Burkina Faso and how that will have implications for Ghana. So I'm also uh, the reason why I'm mentioning this is that yes, we can talk about protection of civilians, yeah. but is any external actor actually able to play this role in the Sahel? And are we even talking about it in the right way when we're talking about the Sahel in isolation from West Africa and the broader sort of conflict dynamics in in that region where there has been a lot of conflict uh, over the past uh, t- t- uh, 20, 30 years? So, I mean, that... That leads into sort of the next question that I was going to ask you both is what what do you think needs to change in terms of the the current approach? And I mean, it is such a complex. Uh, if you look at somewhere like Mali, you've already talked about the UN, you've talked about uh, G5 Sahel states being involved here. Uh, and you've also talked about, you know, the United States, the, um, the, the UN body. So, I mean, what do you think? needs to change to make sure that the that these these efforts can be sort of tied up to mitigate the the dangers of um civilian casualties and not not you know putting enough resources into protection of civilians or prioritizing it as that the strategic level is, as you were saying yeah i i think and and i think it's it's really interesting this thing that peter is also saying that that this thing with the entanglements of, of of the regions and you also see actors uh, definitely not respecting borders and this is also something jihadist actors can sort of um uh, draw upon in their call for a a, a borderless uh, jihad also interesting in how Euro- europe is so occupied with the, with borders but i think there's also something that relates to this question of of, of of states, because I think sometimes in in and also in the international efforts highlighting the 
the the the regional dynamics there is also this questions of of the state and and there is a tension uh in the relationship to host states which which i think um and we can talk more about that when it comes to the question of security se- sector reform but i sometimes see that there's this ambiguity between being a non-executive mission mon- most of these uh in turn uh, international interventions they are by invitation but there is sort of a tension between them this uh, chapter 7 and using all pot- all possible means um and but and the problem is that you are do and and i think in mali it's also very clear that the state is like a direct partner in in um, in the in the in the conflict and but what you're also uh, addressing in your series here this aspect of remote warfare i think there's this tendency that we that that uh, international actors they also rely on to an um, uh, increasing extent on regional actors to actually carry out these security actors so that becomes a problem when then you you cannot push these uh, states that first they um, uh, outsource uh, security to militias and um, we end up being perhaps uh, because we know I think most uh, international actors agree that security sector reform is wanted uh, or is needed but it's not wanted by these um, uh, for instance the Malian state so you end up doing more sort of a training and equipping having to maintain a very tensious and difficult relationship to host states and and um, i think that is actually one thing that we really need to um, to address uh, because a lot of the atrocities that we see i mean last week there were circulations of farmer the malian armed forces beheading uh, mil- uh, militants in um, in the north uh, of um, of mali so what kind of um, complicity do we end up uh, being in with supporting these uh, uh, very difficult uh, security forces that is embedded in a particular very difficult culture um, and my recent um, because the both the UN but also the European Union is very engaged in uh, trying to do security s- sector reform but they all the, uh, the the European actors say that there is this question of sovereignty. The Malians don't want uh, us to interfere. So how do you balance that? Both having to push for reforms that could protect civilians, but you're dealing with a very unrepresentative state that doesn't really have uh, the willingness to do so, and yet you rely on these people to actually carry out security for your own strategic interests. I think sort of also listening to to see what I hear her say, <laughs> apart from some very interesting analysis of Mali, is also how much can external actors actually do? Yeah. How much can we expect from the UK, from France, from the UN, even from 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 the EU? Uh, how, what can we expect from uh, from them when they engage in a, in 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 a region that they they, let's be honest, barely understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also to understand a little bit more what are what are your intentions of going in? Why you what what is your motivation to go into Sahel? Is that sure. to to safeguard uh, safeguard uh, stabilize Mali and make Mali into a sort of like a, a beacon of hope for the for the region, or is it to actually try to stabilize your own borders? And that's happening both in terms of what the regional 
uh, actors are doing, uh, such as uh, the, the ones that are contributing, the African countries in the region that are contributing to MINUSMA, but it's also happening, of course, as as Sina has written extensively about, uh, with the with the with the EU trying to stabilize it, its own southern borders and taking that that fight and that battle, if you can put it like that, mm-hmm. uh, to Sahel, to Mali, rather than having people coming to the doorstep of the EU uh, and, and, and knocking knocking on the door. So when you're asking what has to change when <laughs> you do protection of civilians well, uh, you can say all the sort of things about stronger uh, MINUSMA has to be, uh, the, the, you know, the, the troop contributing countries have to be better better trained to do so. They have to be better equipped. The, the, we have to strengthen the, the central governments of the individual states so that they are capable of actually sort of protecting civilians against the jihadists. And we have to build up the socio-economic foundation so people have something to live off so they do not pick up arms in in the name of uh if the in the name of Allah if you can yeah put it yeah, like that sure and sure. I think that that those those reasons have been said many times but I think it's more also in I think it have been said many times by analysts but I think it's also not taking the geopolitics of this dynamic really seriously because it's not just about countries it's about at the very very local level and it's about who's representing who uh, as 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 seen as so eloquently put it before. Yeah, yeah I absolutely. think you this thing about uh, Peter, you say the reason why why people are or why these Western states are contributing because I think there's it's almost become too cynic and sometimes I think that that um, the questions of in mission goals are they even so important because there's also as all these international actors has become engaged i mean the sahel is a strategic priority for europe um, not i think sometimes it more sold as if it's because of our own security interests but i think it's as much about with as you're also speaking about i mean the us has been in the sahel for for decades but there is a potential withdrawal of yeah. of uh, of the us so so sahel is and has also historically been an arena for uh, showing uh, um, capability of being an important uh, security actor. And this has, of course, with this Sahel crisis, become even more evident. So it's also about showing one's own ability to be an important security actor and also being in the right alliances. I think with with the I think uh, this discussion we, you were having about what is the UK's um, interests and, and strategic uh, priorities with contributing is similar to what we have had in Denmark. And I think for Denmark, it's very obvious that uh, with uh, sort of uh, more unstable uh, cross-Atlantic uh, alliances, this uh, alliance with France has been the, the most important driver. So so are we then more interested in our allies and keeping up uh, the, the relationships? Uh, and then this question of what actually happens on the ground is, mm-hmm. is, is becoming less important. And I think that's yep. really problematic and that's going to end up biting us uh, <laughs> I mean I, I, I think that's such an interesting point that you make and something that's really important to this because you know in conversations that that we have had about the UK's proposed deployment to MINUSMA which we're going to get onto a bit later but I just wanted to, to make this point is that you know the government has responded to to questions from uh, MPs etc about what it is that 
they're meant to be going to do. They're meant to be supporting the UN mission in providing intelligence to support UN headquarters. But in some, of, when we spoke to some of the the personnel that are actually going to be deployed on the ground, they see it often as a way of bolstering the relationship with the French. So is it both? Is it that it's are we there to sort of ostensibly be supporting the UN mission when actually the priority is there to bolster our relationship with France? And I think it's it's that clarity that we need to understand before you can then discuss, you know, how are we prioritizing certain aspects around protection of civilians or you know, what is the, the sole purpose of, of, of us being in Mali, an area that the UK doesn't historically have uh, much uh, institutional knowledge about. Um, as a, I suppose, a, an area that has been largely, because of history, been a, an area that France has focused on, for example. But I think also what you're touching on there, it's also a matter of why, what, what purpose, with, with, with what purpose does the UK send out its troops? What, mm -hmm. what brief are they given when yeah. they're told to, to go to uh, Somalia, where I met a lot of British military personnel, to Sierra Leone, where I met a lot of them, and also now to, to Mali? What is actually the role that they are playing? And what, what role have they, are, they, are, they, are they able to play within the remits that, uh, that, that they're working? I mean, how much access do they have to people? Yes. Are they told to go out and speak to people, understand the culture, quote unquote, uh, and then, uh, you know, through through that, start to engage with with the local population in order to really build up systems that are, are sensitive to the place where they are. No, that's and that has nothing to do with whether they are in in Sahel or in East Africa, where the UK has played a huge role, or on the coast in Ghana. That that's not how that's not how they roll, basically. Uh, so <laughs> I know that the next question is about civil society, uh, and yes, there is maybe some there's some answer in that uh, in terms of, of of changing how you approach this. But the bottom line is that the UK is sending military staff as a state to another state to support that state whatever that state is mm. in controlling the territory that it's governing and i don't think you will find a lot of military persons officially understanding how to to deal with this situation or deal with a place where they are differently mm. Mm. i mean i could go into this a lot i've been i'm an anthropologist and i've been working with a lot of uk military for the last 10 years and observing them <laughs> and how they operate and it is interesting i mean they come with a particular culture in approaching the work that they have been asked to do and it's about solving a problem and continue to try to solve that problem until it's solved and sometimes when it's unsolvable it's rarely accepted mm. Mm. and we really i think here here we are talking about a context in which there are problems that are unsolvable by at least by external actors and to an extent even also and there Sina will have much more to say mm. by internal actors because there's so many different interests at stake. I'm going to bring in the civil society <laughs> question into another one but I just on that point because you're sort of we're tapping into this now this really interesting point about coordination um, in terms of sort of the context of the UK coming in and you know something that we've done from our, our own research on the Sahel and, and the Horn of Africa is that coordinating with international actors and host governments and civil society both in country and in the UK are really really important but we found that there's sort of significant challenges when it comes to having that effective coordination I think we've already sort of talked about some of those issues already but I know that you've done a lot of research around this as well and I just wondered if you could tell us what you have found when it comes to good practice around cooperation of countries in somewhere like the Sahel. 
Yeah, I just also wanted to add that I think that um, this question of uh, external actors, I mean, being a, a former French colony, the, the, the question of French interests in this area is, of course, uh, very important. And there is tons of rumors around also uh, among local actors and, and, and uh, you know, all my, the people I know and talk to intellectuals have wide variety of conspiracy theories about what the French want in, in, in the Sahel. And there is a lot of interest, uh, interesting aspects of that. But I think it's very important to say that, of course, the French are not neutral. And, and as we also saw in our study, Peter and I, and, and which is actually something that is similar in, in the different missions that I've looked at afterwards, is that when it comes to like the strategic positions that speaks into the Malian, all relationship with uh, the Malian government, it is often uh, French liaison uh, personnel sitting there and there, there's a language barrier so I think I hear from a lot of also you know other member state um, uh, officers being in these missions that that there is uh, too much of, of a French uh, dominance sometimes um, mm -hmm. and people are sort of in an, uh, a lot of other uh, um, membership countries feel in a position of inferiority because they don't speak the the language as well and all that and because the french of course has a much more uh, deep historical relationships and but i want to 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 stress that point and also coming to what you're asking this thing yeah. about coordination because i think it's something that is on everybody's uh, lips these days but what does it actually mean in practice does it mean that each uh, it's difficult enough to to uh, to plan operations in a place like Mali. Do you then have to coordinate with everybody? And I think also that and and talking to this thing about some perhaps donor cooptation. I think maybe uh, um, we can also acknowledge uh, that maybe everybody doesn't have to do the same thing because I think in the Sahel what we're seeing is that. The donors end up being, you know, played a little bit around the Malians' uh, game of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, negotiating uh, in their favor. So I think sometimes it could also be helpful that uh, that the different donors actually have different projects and dif different approaches. So I would just say that, um, um, of course, we shouldn't leave big uh, gaps behind. And in certain areas, like what Peter and I also looked into, this question of uh, sharing intelligence much more could be be done, particularly when it comes to protection of civilians. But I think there's also uh, a need for a bit of a diversified uh, donor strategy, because what we're also seeing with, for instance, the EU trust fund to the Sahel mm -hmm. is that there is a tendency for um, uh, smaller NGO civil society actors that cannot uh, access the, 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 the biddings. So so uh, because it's fast, some yeah. of the, the normal procedures for how you do biddings in the EU is actually uh, <laughs> thrown out with the, the bath uh, water, which means that it's the big uh, corporations and sometimes state-led uh, corporations that gets the, the bits. And I think that's uh, a problem in terms of engaging civil society actors and also mm -hmm. this thing about mm -hmm. some donor cooptations. So I think uh, just to, uh, to, to st yeah, um, I think it's always, I always start with the, with, when I talk about coordination, I, as I said, I looked at a lot of Sierra Leone. So basically in Sierra Leone, yeah. the UK was <clears throat> by far the dominant actor. They were the only ones really calling the shots to the extent that all other donors, to an extent, but quite clearly were marginalized from making sure. the 
strongly having uh, anything to say in the security sector. But even there, you had sort of a dynamic between the FCO, the DFID, and 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 uh, and uh, and the MOD. Uh, so the turf was between these three departments also playing out in in in, in Sierra Leone, who was actually the strategic lead in country, uh, who had the money, DFID had the money, that has been a problem for FCO and MOD for a long time, specifically <laughs> in terms of spending money the way that the DFID can. So um, my point is that even when it's only one country, there will be turf conflicts that have Absolutely. a detrimental effect on how uh, on how programs are pushed forward, what types of alliances are made with the government, with which people within the government. Take it then to a place like the Horn of Africa, where the UK has had a strong historical role, but where there are many, many, many actors playing a role. The UN, the US, you have the whole, uh, you have the uh, Arabic countries, mm. you have uh, the neighboring countries as well. The UK will still try to do what's best nationally. They will try to push, uh, uh, push for instance, counterterrorism legislation. Uh, they want to push uh, sort of legislation that can allow them to send uh, people back from the UK uh, legally to Somalia. And they will, that will not necessarily be in coordination with everybody else. That will be what is desirable in terms of national interest. Take then the UK now to Sahel, where they do not have a historical role to play. They have it on the coast, but they do not have it on, uh, in, in the Sahel to the same extent as, as Sina just said. What is that going to do, going to do to the UK uh, in terms of actually going into a space where the French are very dominant? Mm. Will there be an acceptance that they are not, the, the, they, they cannot push their agenda the same way that they have done in other places? Or, uh, or will they subsume and understand that they have sort of a quote-unquote inferior role in the Sahel? And I think that's very interesting to, 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 yeah. very interesting to, to see. I think very interesting about the UK. I think Brexit, we can't sort of like just ignore Brexit. Mm. And I know that France and Germany have said, well, we're going to work with the, we're going to disregard Brexit in our collaboration at uh, in Sahel. But I do think that Brexit, and I have, I will not go too much into it because I think I cannot speak to a British person without that person becoming a little bit sick because we've been <laughs> so much to it for the past many years. But it says something about how the UK also understands its role in the world, obviously. And and do they take that understanding with them into a mission like that? And the reason why I'm saying that, that has huge implications for, for, for how you coordinate. When I was in Mogadishu, the only, reason, the only reason why the UK took us into some meetings about something relating to national security coordination in, in, in State House in Mogadishu was because we found out that they were doing something. They did not invite the UN to begin with because the UN obviously is very low and on, on the low on sort of low in status. And I know how a lot of Brits, a lot of not Brits, a lot of the within the government looks at the U, the UN. So will they accept to go into this space and be coordinated? And I think that is really one of the big problems. Yeah, I do I think that. I do think that it's a, I do disagree with the with the with the Sina in terms of saying that it's okay if people do not coordinate. No, to an extent, because you can't uh, hamstrung, you can't sort of tie people down to that yeah. extent so they can't mm -hmm. do anything without coordinating. And I, I understand the rationale of it, but I think in these contexts, doing something is not always the best thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, there's this tendency to say, as long as we at least do something, you know, it, because it's better to do something than nothing. And sometimes, actually, doing nothing is probably the best 
way to spend uh, to, to 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 act so that you don't uh, uh, lose uh, both resources, time, and energy on something that has no impact or influence, and at worst have really negative impact on on the situation that you're yeah, trying to. I think it also depends on, I was also speaking mostly about this thing about addressing civil society and donor monies and I think it's fair, of course, if you're in one sector you need, and that's also what they say in Mali, that everybody wants to coordinate but nobody wants to be coordinated <laughs> but I still think that it, it, it for a developmental uh, point of view and, and, and there are still a lot of development actors in the Sahel, for that point, I, I think it um, for civil society actors that that people do work in different domains. I don't mean within the same um, uh, sector, for instance, or when we speak about security sector reform. There's there's also too much sort of uh, donor competition within the security sector reform, and I think that's not helpful for anything at all. I was, I was going to say, you know, I thought that was an interesting point that you, you made, Sino, about, you know, um, states perhaps doing their own thing and i think i think perhaps it works if they're doing their own thing as long as it doesn't undermine you know that what the overall objective is in in mm. mali right i think that's that's the real challenge in terms of coordination because it will be right that a state like denmark will have very different priorities and very different capabilities to someone like the uk or france but hopefully it would be doing something in a way that contributes to the overall uh, objectives of that mission rather than just doing its own thing and, and undermining um, that goal. So I think that's maybe uh, an important context and something that we've argued as part of our recent report on what, what the UK is calling fusion doctrine, but, you know, remote warfare, UK's remote warfare across Africa is about having coordination, as we talked about in the Sierra Leone context between the departments, but also in country among different partners um, uh, as well. And I think the point you raise about the UK as acting as a, an, an inferior uh, partner, I wouldn't use that 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 terminology if I was speaking to a British Army officer. Uh, but maybe the, a junior partner uh, would be a, a way to to start that, that <laughs> a way to start that dialogue. I think this is another area that we have looked at as well in terms of is the UK prepared? And you've got two countries that are in a way somewhat similar in terms of their attitudes about themselves with the French and and the British. Um, you know how how does that uh, relationship work? In, in, in practice. And I think the language barrier that you were discussing earlier as well, in terms of if the French are going to force, you know, their way of doing things, they've got four and a half thousand troops on the ground, you know, they've got more skin in the game, as it were, um, you know, they're able to perhaps then act as the, the the coordinator in that sense, because they have just from presence, they, they feel like they have more of a, uh, a role in doing that. Um, I'm very conscious of time. Uh, we're, nearly, we're nearly 40 minutes in. And I just wanted to quickly turn to uh, a question about something that I think Sina and, and Peter, you've both sort of uh, addressed in in your your research, is you know the the number of um, civilians in somewhere like Mali or the Sahel that are turning against international interventions, and I think it feeds into all these things that we have been discussing already. But I just wondered why that seems to be happening now, and increasingly so what the consequences are of this. And does that reflect, going back to that civil society point, does it reflect that there is a lack of understanding of the, the population on the ground? You know, we talked about the socioeconomic uh, issues uh, that are, you know, playing into the extending the conflict as well. Just if you could provide some analysis on those very complex questions. So I think, I mean, again, I, I think that's a very interesting uh, point uh, and sort of also an uh, issue to discuss <clears throat> Peacekeeping 
if we take MINUSMA, has gone, as we just discussed earlier, from an attempt to sort of like attempt to stop two parties from from fighting, basically, and being in the middle of between them on a border, so they stop fighting, basically. And now it's much more political. It's much more sort of like unclear actually who are the parties to the conflict, uh, and therefore it becomes therefore become because it becomes more politicized. These missions. It, it also becomes clear that these missions are taking sides. So I think both in in um, in, uh, in in the Horn uh, they're taking side with the federal government, but certainly also in Mali. Of course, MINUSMA has a mandate to work with the government in Mali. So they cannot take sides with all these uh, these uh, these groups that are running around in Mali uh, in this fight. So therefore, they become very partial to to the to the conflict, and it's obviously one of the sort of the the key concepts, or key sort of like the ethos of uh, of, of peacekeeping, is, is impartiality. So I don't think that you can sort of boil it down to saying people just don't understand how how well-meaning we are uh, <laughs> uh, in in the UN when the UN is working with the government that also has a political agenda, sure. and actually pushing a certain way of of either suppressing other people or making we I use this term order. In, in, in a territory that will be detrimental to certain mm. groups or individuals. So if you start reforming the security sector, if you start reforming the military, if you start reforming the government, some people will lose out when you do that because some people will lose access to resources that they're, usually, that they're used to having access to. And that means that they will resist. And it's basically the same whether you're talking about the government and doing security reform within within pharma or the military, or you're trying to do it regionally, it, it still has the same effect. And therefore, it becomes partial, and therefore, it cannot be seen as impartial to civilians on the ground. Sina, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think my thoughts is perhaps, and excuse me for being a little bit uh, Sahelian uh, context-specific, but I think also... Uh, I mean, since uh, f- the French started o- Operation uh, Saval, which then became Bakken, uh, and since 2016, more than 1,500 people have been killed. And I mean, the spiral of violence in central Mali has just reached like an all-time high. Last year, what the was the deadliest with more than 800 uh, killed. Um, and, and one of these massacres was, um, and, and, and it was right after those massacres were in a village that was burned down and more than 150 people died and the international actors was not there. And, and that act sort of um, spurred all these uh, very big protests in in Bamako, and I have been there while while they have 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 taken place because they they really show, I think, to to local people that, I mean, the international actors, despite the presence, despite the Mali has more than twenty five thousand foreign soldiers in the country, wow. there is no uh, stabilization. On the contrary, we are seeing attacks every day. Uh, rumors are that pharma is underestimating the numbers of of uh, people being killed by jihadist actors because they also need to recruit to their armies um uh, and and people know somebody who has died uh, from this and that just leads into this question that people are saying how can it be that all these well equipped actors cannot just when the french come in uh, similar to Vietnam, where you have had this guerrilla war, why can they not wipe out these few uh, thousand men? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that uh, definitely is what also spurs the the the, the, the legit 
victimization of international actors and then of course the colonial heritage and the fact that a lot of it's not just uh, western actors and i think that's something maybe you need to uh, um <laughs> Look, take a look at in the next podcast but there's yeah. also a lot of uh, other actors or non-liberal actors like the Russians there mm. uh, the, 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 the Gulf states everybody's looking uh, to the Sahel and everybody the Chinese are there everybody's there to, to spy on each other so there's maybe we want to withdraw but there's also the, this question that I think that, that the Western actors are asking themselves who's going to fill that gap if, if we withdraw right so um Uh, yes, and and that just means that we're also entering this uh, fourth uh, uh, sphere of war, which is the cognitive warfare that rumors and fake uh, news of and fake uh, conspiracy theories are flourishing on social media about uh, what do the French want. We see them, we see uh, videos where. Th- There's French officers showing jihadists where they should attack and, and, and things like that. And a lot of different actors can pick up on that and use that strategically. So I, I just want to, to emphasize that a lot is at stake here in terms mm. of, of uh, gaining legitimacy. And I think that the Western actors should not underestimate the, the importance of, um, of uh, legitimacy towards local populations, not just their, their partners uh, in, in the field. But also think I- with good reason to be suspicious of what the French are doing in the Sahel, right? I mean, when you're looking what what they have actually done, both in Chad and in in Mali, there's good reason to also be what what is actually the agenda of the French in in, in the region. That's not always clear that that's uh, to the benefit of the local population, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And not just uh, you, uh, the French, I mean, that could Definitely. be in any... Well, you, you've nearly spurred me on to ask another question, which I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist because I'm really interested in that point about <laughs> Russia and China. And I think it's a it's a topic that comes up a lot in, when we discuss, you know, what the UK's role is. You know, is it providing, uh, is it of benefit, the UK training up these um, different state forces? And people often come back to us and say, well, if we're not there, then Russia and, and China will be there. But I think you raise a really good point, which is that China and Russia are already there. So, you know, the the the, the dynamics are, are very different when you look at it from that context. It's not like Russia and China aren't already present in some of these places. Um, but yes, I think that that's probably a, a topic for for another podcast. <laughs> I wanted to end. I wanted to end. I know we have discussed this uh, a bit through, throughout the podcast, but look, the UK is still, as, as things are planned, I, I believe, deploying to the, the, the UN mission in Mali, as we've been talking about. What advice do you have for the UK government uh, with this impending <laughs> deployment? Good luck. <laughs> no. Peter, you go first. <laughs> uh, no, I, I just, I mean, I think with my knowledge, as we just discussed before, I think this, yeah. this going in with sort of an idea that the UK is actually a junior partner in this, uh, I think that would be quite helpful in terms mm. of if, the, if, if that would be sort of like sort of possible for the UK to do that <laughs> in in, uh, in in a context like Sahel because even though it, it 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 is an important actor internationally and it remains so the UK despite its uh, its uh, treacherous leaving the the EU uh, it it is it, it's also uh, going into a, a region where it has played a limited role and therefore there has a limited understanding and also there are a lot of other actors there already playing quite a big role uh, so i think 
if you take up that junior position, you also sort of like take a step back and maybe try to understand the context in which you're operating that you can then use to do more stronger programming. I'm also a little bit sort of like looking for something to say here because I feel also the, the, the issues that are at stake are so massive and so dramatically massive then that what can they what what can actually be said in one sentence or in five mm-hmm. sentences to the UK that would make it fundamentally easier for it to play a strong role in in, in the Sahel. So I will leave it uh, to uh, to Sina to do that. And, and what about the specific <laughs> point around you know protection of civilians? What what can the UK expect to contribute with? But, but I think there you're playing. There you're playing into sort of what we talked about in the very at the in the very beginning. But the UK is not going to do the protection of civilians. Mm. They, they, it's going to be other troops, as, as far as, as, as I understand it, that are actually going to do the physical protection. Yes. And, yes. and the physical protection is where the problem is. The problem is that MINUSMA's forces, if, if, uh, if uh, Burkina Faso is feeling that its own territory is under threat, it will sort of intuitively go to its own territory and try to defend that rather than to protect civilians. If it feels that its its base is under attack, it will go to the, its base within Mali to protect that before it protects uh, mm-hmm. civilians. Um, and it, it that has to do with capacity, that has to do with the ability to actually do the protected civilians and maybe also an unclear political brief from back home. And yeah, I think sure. the UK... What, what would it look at like practically? Would it be that the UK go to Niger, goes to Burkina Faso and tells them, guys, you really need to do protection of civilians because it's very important for the mandate of MINUSMA. They will look at them and say, okay, then you do it. I mean, you, and you can see how easy it is. So I think the, the, the UK cannot, it, 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 what is needed in terms of protective civilians is that all all the countries that are doing that are, that are providing the troops really show that they're willing to go that out on the line. They will risk mm-hmm. their lives to actually fulfill the mandate. And not all countries are willing to do that. So I, as I just said, just very briefly, this report that I've, we've been writing on protection of civilians, uh, looking at Ghana and India that are in the top 10 of uh, peacekeeping uh, troop contributors uh, in the UN system, they will both, so they will, they, so India will say, we will not, do protect civilians unless it's it, it's it's it, it's less dangerous for us because we cannot be pushed in front of the Western troops and actually play this role. Ghanaian troops are a little bit different. It's often in Africa, so they have this feeling that they are actually helping their you know compatriots from across Africa, and they actually do see people in South Sudan, other places in Mali, as sort of as people that they somehow have a relationship to due to to, sure. uh, to geographic graphical proximity they will never they will not say that they won't go that ex, extra mile or sort of push it to, to to that extent they will just not do it because they will also try to protect themselves from actually getting into a situation where a lot of people are killed where the government has to suddenly start sort of legitimizing why soldiers being sent to to, to these places so my 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 point is probably that I'm struggling to give a good sort of like advice to the UK troops, and thankfully they're not paying me to do that either. So you know they're not losing out in terms of doing protection civilians because it's not just difficult for the UK; it's actually difficult for for everybody that are, that is being asked to do that. And it just so happens that countries in the region are more willing to send troops into very difficult circumstances than mm. western western countries are I, th- I think you speak to that really important point as well about you know the uk providing a supporting role and it's these other state actors that will be 
set in to do the protection. I think. Yeah, I mean, let's really be very honest. There is a racial dynamic and dimension to peacekeeping that is very unpleasant to talk about. And right. uh, and I think that that's that's what I'm talking about here as well. It's 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 basically black people that are being put on the front line of Minusma, and, and the white people are sitting in camps that are right. much better protected, much further away from from the front line, and and uh, and and the conditions of service are much much better. I mean, it's it's it's, my, it's, it's uh, CNN and I saw that in 2017, 18, and I've seen uh, after as well. It, it was striking, don't you think, Cena? Yeah, there's definitely an issue of uh, bunkerization and very different uh, exposure to uh, to threats uh, within uh, the different contingents in the missions. But I would still say for as perhaps if I should answer a question to what mm. the UK should, I still think from and of course there are, there are different levels, but from a strategic level, I think first of all it's still important to to prioritize uh, the UN uh, globally uh, because I don't know what we have if we don't have the the UN and and I also think that as as I started out by saying that it was in June 2019 that actually this question of protection of civilian has finally become one of the sectors strategic priorities also in in the center of Mali uh, so that is perhaps a moment so the mm. the UK in that sense comes in at a moment where perhaps there is a time uh, and willingness to actually prioritize this and because there can still be a gap between what is then uh, addressed as the strategic priorities and then the resources that are then allocated and and Minusma as Peter and I has also said many times is overstretched in terms of covering a large territory in terms of not being filling um, uh, this, the troop ceiling, etc. But, but so there needs to be prioritizing, and that prioritizing needs to to uh, resources has to follow that. So perhaps the UK, instead of just playing the junior role, can also, uh, uh, of <laughs> course, with the fear of seeing now this old colonial power competition playing out in yes. the US, that would be very sad. Yeah. Uh, they can it's also be very be strategic about what they want to achieve. And, and and push for that. I think there is a, there is still a need and a, a possibility for doing that. That's really really fascinating, and I think that's some really interesting points that uh, we can definitely reflect on, and the UK can uh, can take on board. Uh, Sina, Peter, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. Um, we will hopefully speak to you soon, and and you'll join us for another podcast. But thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Liam. Well, thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Now, as ever, for anyone who wants to read in more depth about the topics that were covered in the podcast, we put links to any research or publications that we have mentioned in the episode notes. Go and check them out. And if you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Program or any of the programs at the Oxford Research Group, please do subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. We'd also really appreciate if you could offer a comment, your feedback about what you thought of this podcast, but other podcasts that we've also recorded and produced over the last couple of months. Now, I shouldn't forget that you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all the previous podcasts that we've ever recorded free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. I hope you will join us again for our next episode very soon. Goodbye.